Chapter Five, Part Two of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Clifton. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter Five: Up the River of Tapers. Part Two. I spent a couple of days of hard work in getting the big white-lipped peccaries, white-lipped being rather a misnomer, as the entire underjaw and lower cheek are white. They were said to be found on the other side of, and some distance back from, the river. Colonel Rondon had set out one of our attendants, an old follower of his, a full-blooded Parisis Indian, to look for tracks. This was an excellent man, who dressed and behaved just like the other good men we had, and was called Antonio Parisis. He found the tracks of a herd of thirty or forty cachadas, and the following morning we started after them. On the first day we killed nothing. We were rather too large a party, for one or two of the visiting fazenderos came along with their dogs. I doubt whether these men very much wished to overtake our game, for the big peccary is a murderous foe of dogs, and is sometimes dangerous to men. One of their number frankly refused to come, or let his dogs come, explaining that the fierce wild swine were very badly brought up, a literal translation of his words, and that respectable dogs and men ought not to go near them. The other fazenderos merely feared for their dogs, a groundless fear, I believe, as I do not think that the dogs could by any exertion have been dragged into dangerous proximity with such foes. The ranch foreman, Benedetto, came with us, and two or three other camaradas, including Antonio, the priestess Indian. The horses were swum across the river, each being led beside a dugout. Then we crossed with the dogs, our horses were saddled, and we started. It was a picturesque cavalcade. The native hunters, of every shade from white to dark copper, all wore leather leggings that left the soles of their feet bare, and on their bare heels were spurs with wheels four inches across. They went in single file, for no other mode of travel was possible, and the two or three leading men kept their machetes out, and had to cut every yard of our way while we were in the forest. The hunters rode little stallions, and their hounds were gelded. Most of the time we were in forest or swampy jungle. Part of the time we crossed or skirted marshy plains. In one of them a herd of half-wild cattle was feeding. Herons, storks, ducks and ibises were in these marshes, and we saw one flock of lovely roseate spoonbills. In one grove the fig trees were killing the palms, just as in Africa they kill the sandalwood trees. In the gloom of this grove there were no flowers, no bushes. The air was heavy, the ground was brown with moldering leaves. Almost every palm was serving as a prop for a fig tree. The fig trees were in every stage of growth. The youngest ones merely ran up the palms as vines. In the next stage, the vine had thickened and was sending out shoots, wrapping the palm stem in a deadly hold. Some of the shoots were thrown round the stem like the tentacles of an immense cuttlefish. Others looked like claws that were hooked into every crevice and round every projection. In the stage beyond this, the palm had been killed, and its dead carcass appeared between the big winding vine trunks, and later the palm had disappeared and the vines had united into a great fig tree. Water stood in black pools at the foot of the murdered trees, and of the trees that had murdered them. There was something sinister and evil in the dark stillness of the grove. It seemed as if sentient beings had writhed themselves round and were strangling other sentient beings. 
we passed through wonderfully beautiful woods of tall palms, the Wawasa palm, Wawasa palm, as it should be spelled in English. The trunks rose, tall and strong and slender, and the fronds were branches twenty or thirty feet long, with the many long, narrow green blades starting out from the midrib at right angles in pairs. Round the ponds stood stately burity palms, rising like huge columns with great branches that looked like fans, as long, stiff blades radiated from the end of the midrib. One tree was gorgeous, with the brilliant hues of a flock of party-colored macaws. Green parrots flew shrieking overhead. Now and then we were bitten and stung by the venomous fire-ants, and ticks crawled upon us. Once we were assailed by more serious foes, in the shape of a nest of marabundi wasps, not the biggest kind, but about the size of our hornets. We were at the time passing through dense jungle under tall trees, in a spot where the down timber, holes, tangled creepers, and thorns made the going difficult. The leading men were not assailed, although they were now and then cutting the trail. Colonel Rondon and I were in the middle of the column, and the swarm attacked us. Both of us were badly stung on the face, neck, and hands. The colonel even more severely than I was. He wheeled and rode to the rear, and I to the front. Our horses were stung, too, and we went at a rate that a moment previously I would have deemed impossible over such ground. At the close of the day, when we were almost back at the river, the dogs killed a jaguar kitten. There was no trace of the mother. Some accident must have befallen her, and the kitten was trying to shift for herself. She was very emaciated. In her stomach were the remains of a pigeon, and some tendons from the skeleton or dried carcass of some big animal. The loathsome burny flies, which deposit eggs in living beings, cattle, dogs, monkeys, rodent, men, had been at it. There were seven huge white grubs, making big abscess-like swellings over its eyes. These flies deposit their grubs in men. In 1909, on Colonel Rondon's hardest trip, every man of the party had from one to five grubs deposited in him, the fly acting with great speed and driving its ovipositor through clothing. The grubs cause torture, but a couple of cross-cuts with a lancet permit the loathsome creatures to be squeezed out. In these forests, the multitude of insects that bite, sting, devour, and prey upon other creatures, often with accompaniments of atrocious suffering, passes belief. The very pathetic myth of beneficent nature could not deceive even the least wise being if he once saw for himself the iron cruelty of life in the tropics. Of course, nature, in common parlance, a wholly inaccurate term, by the way, especially when used as if to express a single entity, is entirely ruthless, no less so as regards types than as regards individuals, and entirely indifferent to good or evil, and works out her ends or no ends with utter disregard of pain and woe. The following morning at sunrise we started again. This time only Colonel Rondon and I went with Benedetto and Antonio the Indian. We brought along four dogs, which it was fondly hoped might chase the Cachadas. Two of them disappeared on the track of a taper, and we saw them no more. One of the others promptly fled when we came across the tracks of our game, and would not even venture after them in our company. The remaining one did not actually run away, and occasionally gave tongue, but could not be persuaded to advance unless there was a man ahead of him. However, Colonel Rondon, Benedetto, and Antonio formed a trio of hunters who could do fairly well without dogs. After four hours of riding, Benedetto, who was in the lead, suddenly stopped and pointed downward. We were riding along a grassy intervale between masses of forest, and he had found the fresh track of a herd of big peccaries crossing from left to right. 
there are apparently thirty or forty in the herd. The small peccaries go singly or in small parties, and when chased take refuge in holes or hollow logs where they show valiant fight. But the big peccaries go in herds of considerable size and are so truculent that they are reluctant to run and prefer either to move slowly off chattering their tusks and grunting or else actually to charge. Where much persecuted, the survivors gradually grow more willing to run, but their instinct is not to run, but to trust to their truculence and their mass action for safety. They inflict a fearful bite and frequently kill dogs. They often charge the hunters, and I have heard of men being badly wounded by them, while almost every man who hunts them often is occasionally forced to scramble up a tree to avoid a charge but I have never heard of a man being killed by them. They sometimes surround a tree in which the man has taken refuge and keep him up it. Cherie, on one occasion in Costa Rica, was thus kept up a tree for several hours by a great herd of three or four hundred of these peccaries, and this although he killed several of them. Ordinarily, however, after making their charge, they do not turn but pass out of sight. Their great foe is the jaguar, but unless he exercises much caution, they will turn the tables on him. Cherie, also in Costa Rica, came upon the body of a jaguar which had evidently been killed by a herd of peccaries some twenty-four hours previously. The ground was trampled up by their hooves, and the carcass was rent and slit into pieces. Benedetto, as soon as we discovered the tracks, slipped off his horse, changed his leggings for sandals, threw his rifle over his arm, and took the trail of the herd, followed by the only dog which would accompany him. The peccaries had gone into a broad belt of forest, with a marsh on the farthest side. At first Antonio led the colonel and me, all of us on horseback, at a canter round this belt to the marsh side, thinking the peccaries had gone almost through it. But we could hear nothing. The dog only occasionally barked, and then not loudly. Finally we heard a shot. Benedetto had found the herd, which showed no fear of him. He had backed out and fired a signal shot. We all three went into the forest on foot towards where the shot had been fired. It was dense jungle and stiflingly hot. We could not see clearly for more than a few feet or move easily without free use of the machetes. Soon we heard the ominous groaning of the herd in front of us and almost on each side. Then Benedetto joined us and the dog appeared in the rear. We moved slowly forward toward the sound of the fierce moaning grunts which were varied at times by a cast-net chattering of the tusks. Then we dimly made out the dark forms of the peccaries, moving very slowly to the left. My companions each chose a tree to climb up at need, and pointed one out for me. I fired at the half-seen form of a hog through the vines, leaves, and branches. The colonel fired. I fired three more shots at other hogs, and the Indian also fired. The peccaries did not charge. Walking and trotting with bristles erect, groaning and clacking their tusks, they disappeared into the jungle. We could not see one of them clearly and not one was left dead, but a few paces on we came across one of my wounded ones, standing at bay by a palm trunk, and I killed it forthright. The dog would not even trail the wounded ones, but here Antonio came to the front. With eyes almost as quick and sure as those of a wild beast, he had watched after every shot, and was able to tell the results in each case. He said that in addition to the one I had just killed, I had wounded two others so seriously that he did not think they would go far and that Colonel Rondon and he himself had each badly wounded one, and moreover he showed the trails each wounded animal had taken. The event justified him. In a few minutes we found my second one dead, then we found Antonio's, then we found my third one alive and at bay, and I killed it with another bullet. Finally we found the Colonel's. 
I told him I should ask the authorities of the American Museum to mount his and one or two of mine in a group to commemorate our hunting together. If we had not used crippling rifles, the peccaries might have gotten away, for in the dark jungle, with the masses of intervening leaves and branches, it was impossible to be sure of placing each bullet properly in the half-seen moving beast. We found where the herd had wallowed in the mud, the stomachs of the peccaries we killed contained wild figs, palm nuts, and bundles of root fibers. The dead beasts were covered with ticks. They were at least twice the weight of the smaller peccaries. On the ride home we saw a buck of the smaller species of bush deer, not half the size of the kind I had already shot. It was only a patch of red in the bush, a good distance off, but I was lucky enough to hit it. In spite of its small size, it was a full-grown male of a species we had not yet obtained. The antlers had recently been shed, and the new antler growth had just begun. A great jabiru stork let us ride by him a hundred and fifty yards off without thinking it worthwhile to take flight. This day we saw many of the beautiful violet orchids, and in the swamps were multitudes of flowers, red, yellow, lilac, of which I did not know the names. I alluded above to the queer custom these people in the interior of Brazil have of gelding their hunting dogs. This absurd habit is doubtless the chief reason why there are so few hounds worth their salt in the more serious kinds of hunting, where the quarry is a jaguar or big peccary. Thus far we have seen but one dog as good as the ordinary cougar hound or bear hound in such packs as those with which I have hunted in the Rockies, and in the cane brakes of the lower Mississippi. It can hardly be otherwise when every dog that shows himself worth of anything is promptly put out of that category of breeders, the theory apparently being that the dog will then last longer. All the breeding is from worthless dogs, and no dog of proved worth leaves descendants. The country along this river is a fine natural cattle country, and some day it will surely see a great development. It was open to the development by Colonel Rondon only five or six years ago. Already an occasional cattle ranch is to be found along the banks. When railroads are built into these interior portions of Mato Grosso, the whole region will grow and thrive amazingly, and so will the railroads. The growth will not be merely material. An immense amount will be done in education. Using the word education in its broadest and most accurate sense as applying to both mind and spirit, to both the child and the man. Colonel Rondon is not merely an explorer. He has been and is now a leader in the movement for the vital betterment of his people, the people of Mato Grosso. The poorer people of the back country everywhere suffer because of the harsh and improper laws of debt. In practice, these laws have resulted in establishing a system of peonage, such as has grown up here and there in our own nation. A radical change is needed in this matter, and the Colonel is fighting for the change. In school matters, the Colonel has precisely the ideas of our wisest and most advanced men and women in the United States. Cherie, who is not only an exceedingly efficient naturalist and explorer in the tropics, but is also a thoroughly good citizen at home, is the chairman of the school board in the town of Newfane in Vermont. He and the Colonel, and Kermit and I, talked over school matters at length, and were in hearty accord as to the vital educational needs of both Brazil and the United States. The need of combining industrial with purely mental training, and the need for having the widespread popular education, which is and must be supported and paid for by the government, made a purely governmental and absolutely non-secretarian function administered by the state alone without interference with nor furtherance of the beliefs of any reputable church. The colonel is also head of the Indian Service of Brazil, 
being what corresponds roughly with our commissioner of indian affairs here he is also taking the exact view that is taken in the united states by the staunchest and wisest friends of the indians the indians must be treated with intelligence and sympathetic understanding no less than with justice and firmness and until they become citizens absorbed into the general body politic they must be the wards of the nation and not any private association lay or clerical no matter how well-meaning the Sepatuba River was scientifically explored and mapped for the first time by Colonel Rondon in 1908 as head of the Brazilian Telegraphic Commission. This was during the second year of his exploration and opening of the unknown northwest wilderness of Mato Grosso. Most of this wilderness had never previously been trodden by the foot of a civilized man. Not only were careful maps made and much other scientific work accomplished, but posts were established and telegraph lines constructed. When Colonel Rondon began the work, he was a major. He was given two promotions to lieutenant colonel and colonel while absent in the wilderness. His longest and most important exploring trip, and the one fraught with most danger and hardship, was begun by him in 1909 on May 3rd, the anniversary of the discovery of Brazil. He left Tepirapoan on that day, and he reached the Madeira River on Christmas, December 25th of the same year, having descended the Gai Parana. The mouth of this river had long been known, but its upper course for half its length was absolutely unknown when Rondon descended it. Among those who took part under him in this piece of exploration were the present Captain Amlicar and Lieutenant Lyra, and two better or more efficient men for such wilderness work it would be impossible to find. They acted as his two chief assistants on our trip. In 1909 the party exhausted all their food, including even the salt, by August. For the last four months they lived exclusively on the game they killed, on fruits and on wild honey. Their equipage was what the men could carry on their backs. By the time the party reached the Madeira, they were worn out by fatigue, exposure, and semi-starvation, and their enfeebled bodies were racked by fever. The work of exploration accomplished by Colonel Rondon and his associates during these years was as remarkable as, and in its results even more important than, any similar work undertaken elsewhere on the globe or at about the same time. Its value was recognized in Brazil. It received no recognition by the geographical societies of Europe or the United States. The work done by the original explorers of such a wilderness necessitates the undergoing of untold hardship and danger. Their successors, even their immediate successors, have a relatively easy time. Soon the road becomes so well beaten that it can be traversed without hardship by any man who does not venture from it. Although if he goes off into the wilderness for even a day hunting or collecting, he will have a slight taste of what his predecessors endured. The wilderness explored by Colonel Rondon is not yet wholly subdued, and still holds menace to human life. At Caceres he received notice of the death of one of his gallant subordinates. Captain Cardozo, he died from Beriberi, far out in the wilderness along our proposed line of march. Colonel Rondon also received news that a boat descending the Gai Parana to carry provisions to meet those of our party who were to descend that stream had been upset, the provisions lost, and three men drowned. The risk and hardship are such that the ordinary men, the camaradas, do not like to go into the wilderness. The men who go with the Telegraphic Commission on the rougher and wilder work are paid seven times as much as they earn in civilization. On this trip of ours, Colonel Rondon met with much difficulty in securing someone who could cook. 
He asked the cook on the little steamer Nyak to go with us, but the cook, with unaffected horror, responded, Senor, I have never done anything to deserve punishment. End of chapter 5, part 2